Hello, everybody. Uh, the MML podcast is back. Uh, we are doing video componencies with it because componencies is a word. Yes, it is. Don't look it up in the dictionary. Just, just trust me. Just trust me. Uh, yeah, this is what I've got. I've got camera, mic, TV, and this is how I'm going to do it. <laughs> uh, believe me, I, I've spent the best part of about three weeks trying to figure out how I was going to integrate a video format onto this podcast and this is the best I came up with you know I looked at how streamers do it where they normally they'll play their game they'll screen record it they'll have their webcam on recording them and then they'll pop that little smaller window into the bigger window and give it to you all nice and concise like that uh, when it comes to recording films and tv shows uh, there's a few more restrictions, what you can and can't do legally. Um, and then there's also the practical aspect of getting it done. Uh, it was just, it was difficult because my laptop doesn't, uh, it doesn't matter. Basically, this is the best you're going to get for now. Um, if anyone wants to suggest a different way I can do it, um, please do. But I've tried a bunch and this is what we're doing. So <laughs> uh, again, if you're audio only, I will still... God, I'm breaching the shite out of this microphone, aren't I? If you're still audio only, I will do my very best to um, fill in the blanks of what you can't see and what I'm analyzing and describing and talking about with the audio. But jump on the YouTube channel as well, where we're going to have this video integration on there. So um, it's just a better listening and viewing experience all around. So without further ado... You're not going to be able to hear any of the film that I'm watching. It's going to be video only for you. And to be honest, it's going to be mainly, um, you know, pausing still shots and whatnot anyway. So I wouldn't worry too much. Um, partly, well, that, that's mainly for legal reasons. So that it doesn't get taken down off of the internet and I don't get sued and I don't have any money. Um also as well, this is all me. I'm doing everything here. I'm doing the audio and video, the video and the audio editing, the laptop shit, all the analysis. It's all me. So if it's a little bit slapdash and a little bit, you know, oh, I say I've seen better on someone else's channel. Good for them. Good for them. But <laughs> this is what I've got to deal with, and this is what I'm, I'm producing. So you know. Is what it is. I'm doing it all for free as well. So send me money and it might get better. <laughs> Without further ado, I've said for a long time I wanted to do a Tarantino movie. So to bring the MMLP podcast back into your lives after taking a wee break, um, we're going to kick things off with Tarantino's... Tarantino's? With Quentin Tarantino's directional... Debut, Reservoir Dogs. One of the best crime films ever made. Is is it the best directional debut ever done? I would probably say it is. Some people would probably disagree. But what else are there? What other good directional debuts are there? Memento by Christopher Nolan? Is that up there? What else we got? What else we got? If you can think of any other amazing directional debuts. Ah, oh, Scorsese, Mean Streets. Yeah, that's up there. 
Sorry, I'll try not to slurp and gulp into the mic. Anyway, we're four minutes in, so let's go in. All right. Oh, yeah, and the burps are back in full force, by the way. Burping and farting, sneezing, coughing. Ah. <laughs> uh, I love this opening scene, right? So as you get the um, the standard sort of titles, the, not really the titles, but you know, it's produced by Lawrence Bender and all those things at the beginning. You you hear the dialogue starting, to, um, the conversational dialogue, the mild murmurs of other people being in the room, you know, other tables in this cafe, the sound of like coffee cups uh, gently clanging onto, um, what do they call those small little plates that coffee cups sit on those you know it just these little audio notes let you know oh they're probably in some sort of cafe or restaurant restaurant and then all these shots of the crew the uh the criminals all these shots of them are just the camera's gently circling because they're on a circular table right so the camera's gently circling around their backs so large portions of the screen are taken up with, let me see if I can find a couple for you. The little riggedy rewind here. Um, oh, just let it play. See here, we've got a large portion of the back. Just covers, covers most of the screen, right? And this is all creating a sense of mystery. Who are these people talking? Um, why can't we really see their faces? Why, when we do see their faces, is it dirtied? You know, Tarantino there is dirtying the shot with his own hand and then it's also being dirtied with this person's body. Remember, if you've listened to my other pods, dirtying a shot is instead of being a completely clean, nice, lovely close-up or whatever where you can see all the person, dirtying is just when there's stuff in the way. Simple. Simple film language for you all. So... It's, it's creating a sense of mystique. Who are these people? What are they doing here? What are they sat around doing? Um, the, you know, you would think with the, the mystery behind it, you know, you could see this same sort of shot being used in something like, you know, a World War II cabinet where you've got people talking very seriously and very dramatically about, you know, how they're going to stop Hitler and all that. And yet these guys are just talking about Madonna. So then that's... That's one of the brilliant things that Tarantino does is his dialogue is, I mean, this has been storied to death. You could literally search Tarantino dialogue on Google right now and you'll be hit with thousands of different articles about uh, uses of pop culture in his, in his uh, dialogue. So I won't go into it too much, but he is amazing at that. It's very conversational. It's the sort of thing you could hear people talking about down the pub. Maybe not now with someone like Madonna. Maybe that's a little bit dated, but this film came out in 92, I believe, 91, 92. So, but it just makes it relatable for the audience because you're like, oh, I like Madonna. Yeah, yeah, I did like Papa Don't Preach. Oh, yeah, True Blue was a bit, you know, it's, it's that. But then the, uh, the specificity of the dialogue itself, he's having like a critical analysis on what like a virgin is about and it gets a little bit graphic um so maybe that says something about tarantino's character mr brown maybe he's a little bit uh you know not uh what's the word 
it's a bit derogatory towards women and things. Um, anyway, we'll move on. <laughs> I, re- I really liked Tim Roth's expression just then. He's like listening to Tarantino go on this like vile rant about someone being a fuck machine and getting pain from dick and all that. And he's got this expression on his face like, dude, we're having breakfast. It's nine o'clock in the morning. We're having coffee. Like, what are you talking about, man? <laughs> so good. That's one of the things that Tarantino does. He he writes his characters. No two characters are the same in, you know, one film or anything. Everyone has their own complete... That's one of the benefits about buying DVDs and Blu-rays, right? This so happens to be the Blu-ray edition of... Uh, the reason I like buying... Well, I like having, you know, the actual material goods as opposed to everything being online and all that these days. And the same with CDs and all that. Uh, But one of the benefits of buying something like that is you get the special features. And on the special features of this, he does a a character bio breakdown of all the criminals. And uh, that's how he writes his scripts. For as far as I can see, as far as I've heard and and, uh, researched into it, with pretty much every character and every actor... He don't. He doesn't just. He don't. He don't just give you the script. He don't. No, he don't. No, he doesn't just give you the script. He gives you um, an entire character bio. You know, um, and I, I believe he will as well allow you to bring a certain ma- amount or certain information and choices, character choices, um, to the character yourself. You know, your own interpretation of it and everything. But for example, with films like his latest one, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I know that he had written a complete like uh acting portfolio history for both um booth the stuntman and ah what's leo's character god damn it either way so the point is he fleshes it out so he's like yeah here's your script but here's everything you need to know about the character so uh, information like that can really give an actor so much to work on all good actors you know like the people in this film tim roth harvey Keitel, etc will bring that to the table themselves. But everyone around this table is responding to it their own way. Tim Roth's being a little bit grossed out. Harvey Keitel is tired with it. He's kind of seen it all before. Joe Cavett is doing his own thing. He's reading his Toby Wong book. Um, I think Mr. Pink, uh, Steve Buscemi, the great Steve Buscemi, is just sort of um, just mildly entertained by the whole thing. Uh, yeah, everyone kind of has their own thing going on. See, now for the first time, we, we're not getting those moving shots of stuff going behind the back. We're a little bit more established now. We've kind of seen glimpses of everyone. Um, we've had some pop culture shit to to sort of ease the audience in. Uh, and now we're going to start seeing a little bit more about what these characters are like, what pushes their buttons. Um, don't forget, you've got you got not how many is there eight eight guys seven guys either way there's a bunch of guys they're all criminals they're all going to be a little bit you know um egotistical and alpha and you know so if something's annoying them they're going to step up and say it so again that's brilliant character writing from tarantino uh, and now we're moving on to these 
still shots where you know we're done with that moving behind the back in a constant moving camera creating that sort of aura of mystery and things <clears throat> part of me now we're getting straight into um actually seeing people a little bit more we're in their world now i was wrong we're back on those uh moving behind the back shots and that kind of thing moving around the table it's like it's like we're from the other customers' tables, you know. We're not p supposed to be privy to this conversation. This is uh, this is something else. Um, and maybe that that still shot, or that sequence of still shots just then, where it's focusing on Harvey Keitel having to go at Joe for annoying him, talking about his book constantly, and then Mister Blonde interrupting and saying, "Hey, want me to shoot this guy?" And then Harvey Keitel's, "You shoot me in a dream. You better wake up and apologize," and all of that. It's um, it's just for that, just for those moments like that where there's a little bit more um, confrontation. Confrontation is very important in scenes because it sort of drives them forward a little bit. That if you have a scene where everybody's always on the same page constantly, and there's either if there's no conflict between the characters or the characters trying situational conflict, right? So characters trying to achieve something like say you you could have two characters uh, trying to solve some sort of riddle or puzzle together that's situational conflict so that works but if you don't have that then the characters have to be conflicting with each other otherwise it's really boring i mean you don't have to have that all the time but most sort of stories or screenplays and, and things will one of the big rules is yeah there needs to be some sort of conflict in there somewhere so changing from those moving around shots you know tracking around the back of the uh, the people it just sort of emphasizes that this is a moment of conflict this is a moment where two people are buttonheads spoiler alert foreshadowing with the right i'm not going to get into the specificity i can never say this word i'm not going to get into the specificity of ugh, sorry for making that noise of who shot who, or who shoots who, but that was some foreshadowing. This is how you do intro and credit credit sequences. Let's try that again. Try that again, shall we? Jesus Christ! I can't fucking speak. That's how you do intro sequences. So we, it's such a weird transition. It confused the hell out of me. So you have the whole crew finishing up their breakfast, and as it starts to fade out, and they all get up, you have that. K. Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s Weekend radio host. The most monotone radio host you'll ever hear. He's the one that goes, that was K. Billy Sounds Super 70s. All that shit, right? So he starts speaking as they're leaving. And you're like, hang on, what? Is he commenting on them? And then you're like, oh, he's, he's the radio host. And then as the credits start to roll, we get that Little Green Bag song by the George Baker Selection. You know, boom, 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 That one. That starts playing as we get this. This is some good shit. It's just stylistically bliss. This is just style, panache. The costume choices, you know, everybody in black suits, white shirts, black ties. Before Men in Black did it. This is just effortlessly cool and everyone gets their own little you know not quite a talking head moment but their own little there's this guy in this film this guy's in this film this guy's in this film 
it's it's just cool. It's just cool. The coolest goddamn thing. That's it. That's all I'm gonna say. This is cool. You got this wide establishing shot. All the the main dudes in center frame. Nice simple title sequence. Nothing too OTT. It just looks awesome. The music is awesome. That's it. I love the sort of use of camera in this shot. So they just plonk the camera in the uh, passenger seat, the front passenger seat, and then position Tim Roth laying down in the back behind the driver's side and then Harvey Keitel driving. And then the camera just whips back and forth, or at least it was in the opening part. It may continue to do that, but it whips back and forth for most of it in between various lines of dialogue. So um, quite often when you're acting in a scene, they'll... So what it's moved on to now is um, starting to just cut between them, just doing complete clear cuts. So no like panning of the camera between them. Um, they may have been doing that because it like ups the sort of intensity and the kind of, you know, when there's continuous motion of something, it sort of feels like there's a bit more pace in the scene. Um, you know, they're speeding away in a car, there's blood, something's obviously gone wrong. Um, just before it transitions between the credits and this, we start to hear the dialogue, you know, of Tim Roth sort of screaming in pain and Harvey Keitel trying to help him and everything. Um, and then as we start to see the pictures, all of that continues, pardon me, with the... Uh, uh, ba -ba -ba -ba, with them, you know, screaming in pain and whatnot. So to bring us straight into this fast-paced environment, that might be why Tarantino decided to just pan the camera back and forth between the two. Um, but now we're going to more of these sort of still cuts, you know, cameras on Harvey Keitel, cut, cameras on Tim Roth. Um, and that's normally how, how it is. We call that a, um, uh, what do we call that? God damn it, it's escaped my head. Either way. So when you're in that situation, like as an actor, if the camera's on the other person, like, yeah, you're obviously still in character and you obviously want to be giving the other actor, um, you know, enough of a performance for them to be able to respond to and work off of. Um, sort of slightly begrudge it when actors don't do that, when they um, don't give you everything just because the camera's not on them. Not give you everything, but at least give you, you know, like high 80% wise, something to work off of. Uh, but then situations like where the camera's panning back and forth between the two, it means that both actors constantly have to be on 100% the whole time until they hear cut because you never know when the camera might be panning around to you um, or maybe they've worked out the exact beats and the exact lines that the camera will pan back and forth or, or maybe they haven't. Um, either way, it wouldn't surprise me with Tarantino, to be honest. So I think that's quite an exciting thing for an actor to do because if you're if you're like these guys and you're great at it, you're always going to be giving truthful shit. And if you're just focusing on being truthful in that moment, like, oh, I've literally been shot in the stomach and I'm just wriggling around in the back of this car kind of thing, um, the chances are the camera's going to find some real nice unplanned organic moments of your performance and that's exactly what you want to see um so it's quite fun when you're in a situation where the camera is just rolling like a slight tangent i did a um a short film where it was 
done in the style of a wana. So there's a few hidden cuts in between there. But for those of you who don't know, wana is when it looks like there aren't any cuts. You know, films like Birdman or The Revenant, for example. Um, and that's a lot of fun because you, you're just forced to constantly be on living. It's like being in theatre. It's more like being in theatre. I love the use of this. Uh, this is a wana in a way because um, it's just one continuous shot from them opening the door to the warehouse being brought in it's just one steady cam sorry this chair is so squeaky man i hope this isn't fucking up the audio too much um but yeah it's just one uh steady cam so you just got probably just got one camera operator holding the camera making their way um filming the whole thing and uh they're walking backwards as the actors walk towards the camera and then when they settle down the camera then swings around to get you know face shots again instead of back of the headshots because that's not as interesting um and the the camera that because where you got harvey Keitel carrying uh tim roth through the warehouse uh you know because he's been shot that kind of the camera's kind of mimicking that you know like if they could have done it with like just planting the camera somewhere and having a nice steady sort of still shot on it um but this is a this way makes the audience feel like they're we're right there with those two because we're, the camera is really up close. It's shaky. It's just sort of mimicking that and th allowing the audience to step into that world. And as well, just on the the dialogue and the interaction between these two, um, you kind of have like it's almost like the father figure type thing. You know, you got the younger guy, um, Mr. Orange, Tim Roth's character, sort of being the one in need he needs help he's he is the younger of the two and then you've got Harvey Keitel the been there done that the wise old is it wise old horse is that an expression I don't know um but you know he's there um just being a bit of a protector because he's got to look after this guy right now right um so there is that kind of like father figure son dynamic kind of thing it's just a interesting dynamic for the two characters to have look at the intensity in tim roth's eyes right now this is such a great performance from tim tim roth so like from an acting and sort of directorial point of view here in, in terms of just what do you want the actors to achieve in this scene to drive the story forward right so at the moment, Tim Roth's character, Mr. Orange, has been shot in the stomach. And he says himself, without medical attention, he's going to die. Larry, slash Mr. White, slash Harvey Keitel. Um, for those of you who don't know, hopefully you've seen this film before you're listening to this podcast. Because we're going to be spoiling it if you haven't. Um, but for those who aren't aware, it, it, it's sort of discussed later that the reason they all have these code names, Mr. Orange, Mr. Brown, Mr. White, Mr. Pink, whatever the other ones are, uh, is to retain anonymity in case one of them gets arrested or whatever it might be. You want to, it's, it's a protection thing. So they're not supposed to tell each other their real names, but obviously in a moment of empathy for his colleague who's just been shot to try and comfort him, Mr. White has told Mr. Orange that his name is Larry, meaning he's given him a, a vital piece of information. Mr. Orange knows that he will die if he doesn't get medical attention, but he can't get to the hospital himself. And he knows that Larry, Mr. White, 
Mr. White, yo, bitch. <laughs> he knows that Mr. White doesn't want to take him to the hospital in case he says his name is Larry and then they know what he looks like and they've got, as in the police, they'll know what he looks like and they've got his name. Easier to track him down, right? And arrest him. But Mr. Uh, Mr. Orange has to do everything in his power right now to convince him to take him to hospital or he will die. So there's a big thing in acting, at least in what I was taught, is that you should never enter a scene or walk on stage for a scene without having an action. And an action is your aim for that specific scene, right? Um, some people will say that your action will always have to be to make someone else do something or some, or some people will just say it's to achieve something yourself yourself. So his action here could be, it probably is something along these lines, to make Mr. White take him to the hospital. And there always has to be a consequence for if you don't achieve your action. And the consequence here is that he will die. So look at the intensity in his eyes here and his expression. There's so much pain and fear and pleading and begging and just... He's given everything he can here to convince him to take him to the hospital. Fucking brilliant acting here. Again, just real simple camera work when we're looking, because those two are sort of laid down, you know, Harvey Keitel's comforting Tim Roth. Um, Mr. Pink's just stormed in. Again, a great example of a character walking in with what we call previous circumstance. Um, so previous circumstances, where was your character immediately before either action was called on your scene or immediately before you walk onto stage or whatever it might be? And he comes in fully loaded. He storms in, he kicks open the door. We hear it bang with the the audio um, editing or whatever. We hear it bang, storms in. Was that a fucking setup or what? Like he's coming in hot. And so, and he's sweaty, he's out of breath, you know, he's, his hair's all disheveled. It's apparent this guy has literally just come from somewhere. And brilliant. And, and then, sorry, yeah, the angle was just looking up at him, looking down on them too. Just creates those those nice levels. Love this uh, wide shot. Just before Mr. Pink went into the um, other room there, he was just over right of screen. And it's kind of the first time we've seen... We've established kind of what warehouse they're in or what hideout, hideout warehouse, whatever. It's the first time we've kind of seen uh, what it is. But look how it's lit, right? We've got this big sort of uh, cold light in the front that sort of goes up this wall and partially up that ramp. Very cold, dark colors. Not a nice place to be bleeding out and almost dying. Over in the corner, very dark and shadowy, a bit sinister, you know, all the paintwork and everything is haggard, needs another coat. Got these chains hanging down. It, it just looks dank, dirty, nasty. Just brilliant, like um, Maison Scene. Maison Scene. Uh, yeah. Just, yeah. Just wanted to comment on that. It's nice, nice set. But this is the first time we've seen it. Everything else up Because normally you establish where the characters are first. It's kind of typically you do an establishing shot or something. But yeah, in this one, it's all been close up right there with the characters riding the waves of the characters' emotions and everything. And this is the first time we actually see 
the environment. I wasn't going to talk about this because I'm already like so far into the podcast and only like 17 minutes into the film. But we have that shot where it starts on just some inanimate objects in the I don't know, back room, shower room, toilet room, whatever this is. And it just pans, uh, not pans, just tracks across sideways into this sort of uh, hallway corridor shot where for ages it's only Harvey Keitel in frame. Mr. Pink was around the corner a little bit, but we can hear them talking. Uh, and it sort of just makes you feel like we're eavesdropping on a conversation because they just left Mr. Orange out there in the main warehouse and Harvey Keitel was like, hey, you, in the other room, let's go talk in the other room. So they are having a private conversation. So having the camera hang back and not get involved in the room with them or, you know, right up in the conversation with them just sort of helps us be on that sort of eavesdropping into a private conversation type uh, type feeling, emotion, whatever. You get the point I'm making. If you don't, well, figure it out. So now as we're getting into the nitty gritty where they're actually, they're having a conversation now about uh, what Mr. Pink was talking about when they were in the warehouse before he said hey you let's go in this other room so now that we're into the nitty-gritty of it now the cameras moved in a little bit more so now we're now we're getting down to the brass tacks here ladies and gentlemen and everything in between love this they go from that tight shot on those two and he asks uh Harvey Cotel asks um Steve Buscemi how he got out and he said he started blasting his way out of there just cut immediately to in the audio we hear the the alarm ringing uh like it's like one of those old sort of tin bell things that brrr, alarm things pardon me in the background we hear people yelling and then it just cuts to this uh like uh is this pan or a track oh my god it's a track <laughs> of where the camera is probably on some sort of track dolly uh whizzing along the road he's running uh, that way to the right of screen and then in a minute we'll cut back and there's like three police officers doing the exact same thing just real simple, shows exactly what needs to be shown, that uh, he's running for it. Love that sequence. You've got the, the brilliant shot of uh, when Mr. Pink gets hit with the car, you know, from inside the car, smashes the windscreen, and then when he's on the floor picking himself up, the bonnet of the car is perfectly in frame, and then he's in the foreground to it, so when he stands up, you just see the whole car bonnet. It's just a real nice, neat shot. Uh, and then you have the shootout where you've got like over-the-shoulder shots of all the police shooting at him, over-the-shoulder shots of him shooting at the police. Uh, there's a brilliant shot where he's driving away and we're looking out the back uh, window from the from the car and we've got the police officer running, shooting at him. I don't know if it's police... Maybe in America, this might be a sensitive thing to say, but maybe in America, specifically in California, where I think this film is set, police might be a little bit... Um, trigger happy in such densely populated areas you know there's all these people on this like high street or whatever and the cops are just like ah, fire at will uh so maybe they should be a little bit more careful but it's a film so we can we can forgive some of that shit then straight back into these two guys having a normal conversation and the audio completely changes you know there's like screams there's uh sirens there's gunfire there's running, there's engines, there's all this cacophony of sound in the previous scene. And then just back to the, the silent stillness. This is a really cool moment as well that just reinforces the 
intense um, attention to detail that Tarantino has for his characters, not only being in the moment, um, but all the sort of small bits of behavior or decisions that inform who they are, right? So they're talking now about Mr. Blonde being a bit of a madman and shooting loads of people in the uh, in the store, in the diamond store, uh, wherever they were doing the robbery. Harvey Cartel's washing his hands, combing his hair, just tidying himself up after the ordeal. And then Mr. Pink's casually there. You know, they're, they're talking about a guy who's just gone crazy and shot everybody, right? And he's pulling out his gun, he's checking the bullets in the clip, he puts it back in, and then he cocks it. And that startles Mr. White. He turns around like, what's going on? You know, they're just talking about someone who's just shot loads of people. Mr. White himself has even just said that he thought about shooting Mr. Blonde because he was being so goddamn crazy. And someone's just cocked a gun behind him. So he's like, turns around like, what the fuck is happening? Just brilliant. Just little little notes and flavors just to sort of... It would have been easy for either Tarantino to not direct that or not write it into the script or the char- or the actors themselves to not be responding organically in the moment. You know, he could have cocked the gun and Harvey Keitel could have just carried on combing his hair. It wouldn't have been as interesting. And it doesn't add a lot to the story other than reinforming, reinforcing, reaffirming? A word like that. Uh, it just reaffirms the perilous situation that these characters are in and that they are all in sort of fight or flight mode. Everything's very tense and what's going on? It's good. Again, it might be scripted or it might be Tarantino saying it on the day that they're filming. Um, But just there, they're talking about the who's the rat, who's the undercover cop or the rat or whatever it might be. And Mr. Pink says to Mr. White, for all I know, you're the rat. And then he suddenly, Mr. White goes from talking calmly to him. Uh, he he then explodes. He's, he shouts back at him for all I know, you're the fucking rat. And then he, Mr. Pink says, oh, it could be Mr. Orange. And then again, Mr. White's at his defense shouting at him saying, I saw him take a bullet. Don't call him a fucking rat. All of this. So... It's important that the that the tempers do flare there because it informs um, how do I word this? It's the stakes. It's all about the stakes of the situation, you know. Uh, and it's also about pride, the individual character pride and ego of him being accused of something he's not. And then he's sort of got, like I spoke about before. He's kind of got this like uh, father figure thing going on with Mister Orange, where he feels responsible him now and he wants to try and take care of him and make sure that he's not going to die um so when he also gets accused by mr pink he wants to defend him too so yeah it's um it's a character thing this is how good tarantino is at writing and directing and creating these characters so here's one of the tarantino um staples uh, i've just paused that as it cut away i can't be bothered to rewind it for you Really taking advantage of those visuals I was speaking about by not bothering to rewind to them. <laughs> uh, fuck it. I better add then, didn't I? So you got this scene where you got Mr. White talking to Joe Cabot. Uh, and it 
during this sequence it comes up with um a title card that just says mr white so this is where we're finding a little bit more about mr white his past and everything uh, and what i mean by it being a bit of a tarantino staple is he's always using title cards to break up segments of his films or chapters you know like in pulp fiction you've got um the watch uh the, the gold pocket watch what's that is that just called the pocket watch you've got the bonnie situation um you know you've got the three chapters uh, i think in glorious bastards is split up into about six chapters he's th he's done it throughout his entire um filmography and it's a really cool way to just uh spice things up a little bit and also fun fact uh in this scene joe cabot is asking mr white about his old uh thieving partner alabama and if you've seen true romance which is a film tarantino wrote around about the same time he wrote this but ended up letting uh i believe he sold it to tony scott or sold it to someone and then tony scott ended up directing it ridley scott's late brother tony scott fantastic director r.i.p uh and yeah, and tony scott made uh true romance but i believe the money that he made f that tarantino made from selling true romance was used then to provide some of the budget for reservoir dogs uh and then one apparently this the story goes that harvey Keitel's wife got hold of reservoir dogs said to harvey you need to read this harvey read it and then was like not only do i need to be in this but i need to produce it as well and ended up getting the reservoir dogs budget from something like 20 grand to like 2 million or something like that so you know write a good script hand it to the right people things will happen either way so the alabama that he mentions um intro romance the two main characters that go on you know a bonnie and clyde style escapade over the country uh are clarence worley and alabama so it's again tarantino using similar names like mr blonde's character in this is vic vega uh john travolta's character in pulp fiction is vincent vega they are the vega brothers there you go some trivia for you i told you i'm a tarantino nerd this is such a great shot right so they're discussing the situation again you know the fact that mr orange might die from his his wound uh, mr pink's bringing up points like we shouldn't be staying here we should go to a hotel why isn't joe the main boss and everybody else why aren't they all here it's making him nervous everything going on they're spinning so many plates it's like charlie kelly from always sunny in philadelphia with all those red lines going um you know carol uh, and all that so many things juggling and this this shot starts way further back it um and it just it's just harvey uh, uh, as a mid shot you know waist up harvey is a mid shot and it zooms in gradually gradually as mr pink is off screen in the background talking and you just see harvey Keitel thinking oh, what are we gonna do what are all the parts of the equation you know he's you can see the cogs turning behind his eyes and the camera just zooms in which is like really bringing us into what's going on in his mind what's happening beneath the surface it's just a great way to to show that to the audience you know that, that he's thinking and the, t the tension of his thought is is rising or maybe he's getting closer to figuring it out just a real simple but real effective camera setup love this love this angle where you got the two guys pointing guns at each other. So you the guns in the foreground there, the expression, and then it will cut back and forth to Harvey Cattell looking down at him. 
Just how is that for an image, man? Just good filmmaking. Boom, look at that. This is like I was saying before about the cold lighting. This film would work so well on stage, right? Because quite often in the scene uh, just before this, a lot of the camera was that steady cam, sort of shaky movement, just following the actors around, not a lot of cuts, just being there in the moment with them. So the characters are, sorry, the actors are forced to just sort of be more how it is on in the theater where you're just, you know, you're there present all the time. You're not waiting for the camera to be on you or, or, or your take or whatever it is. Um, and here you've got like great stage lighting. So you've got the white lights of the coldness in front of them in the foreground. So that's all nicely lit so we can see everything. And then the background is a bit more shadowy because it's not, it's not important. And then how's that just for fucking, you know, you've got the levels of the two characters, the guns right there in the middle, almost like they're swords crossing, you know, or like lightsabers, <laughs> crossing swords. Or like the, you know, the lightsabers in Star Wars crossing. It's just, it's two warriors, you know, that aren't going to back down. Um, just a brilliant shot, and then I believe it will. It should zoom out now. Yeah, so this gradual zoom out, especially as we have Mr. Pink um, raising and yelling and and slightly kicking his feet out and everything. Like there's a lot of uh, emotional tension coming from him, and then Mr. White is just cool, calm, and collected. He's not moving. He's not wriggling. He's not shaking. He's not yelling. He's just staring down at him. And with this camera pulling back slowly, the first time I watched it, I was just like, oh, he's going to shoot him. As in Mr. White is going to shoot him. Because it's, you know that, um, oh, what's the expression? It's not all bark and no bite. But it's something about like the, the one who's mouthing off is usually not the strongest one. The one, it's the quiet ones you have to watch out for. They're normally the dangerous ones. So I just thought that was going to be the case, that White was going to shoot Pink. And um, this slow track back is sort of, it's almost like the audience is, uh, you know when like a fight kicks off or something and you take a step back, you're like, whoa, I ain't getting involved in that. You guys sort that amongst yourselves or whatever. I feel like it's kind of the audience just sort of letting themselves out the back door, just, yeah, I'm just going to walk away before he shoots him, you know. At least that's what I got from it. It might just be a cool way that Tarantino decided to um, establish that Mr. Blonde has entered the room. Mr. Blonde has entered the chat. Um, because he does. See? See? Mr. Blonde's in the frame. Bah! And again, it's still marvelously staged. That's such a great shot. Again, that's lit all cold because he's the cold callous psychopathic killer that they've already been speaking about who shot all these innocent civilians during the diamond heist and then this is a little bit more orange but just the gun in frame that's such a cool decision to just have the gun in frame here like this i don't know what it shows other than he may shoot him does it need to say more than that probably not but it's just a good frame one of the coldest lines ever written. Are you going to bark all day, little doggy? Or are you going to bite? Tarantino's a wizard of dialogue. I just want to comment on Michael Madsen's um, characterization of Mr. Blonde. Like, although, yeah, he's a psycho. 
And it's quite apparent that he's a psycho and he's a murderer and he's a ruthless killer and all that. Not once does he ever play up to the like, oh, I'm crazy. He doesn't do any of that shit. He's just really... So in my in my drama school, Drama Center, before it closed down, say my drama school, I went there. It's not my school. But before it closed down, um, one of the big practitioners or components of it was um, Yap Malgram, which just to quickly tell you about that, pardon me uh it's movement psychology so you know some characters are a bit wiry and and quick we would probably call that you know quick uh flicks and and slash movements and stuff i won't you can google this shit i'm just going to tell you briefly what i mean by i'm not going to tell you what i mean by flicks and slashes and stuff you can google that shit um but mr blonde would be what we call sustained where everything's really slow you know he's, he's got slowly touch his face or you know he says well my heart was beating so fast but as he's saying it he's he's not moving fast he's moving slow and sustained and all his actions and responses to other people's uh comments or behavior or dialogue is just very natural and almost unbothered like he's not although they just nearly had a fight he's not bothered about um giving any bravado off like Harvey Keitel says, when he says, oh, I've got, Blonde says, oh, I've got something in my car, you should come and see. Harvey Keitel says, oh, did you forget the fries to go with the shake? And then Blonde just laughs. He's like, yeah, yeah that was funny. He just, And then he's like, no, I had those already. Like he's just, he's not afraid to sort of show how he feels or, or what's happening. He's not masking behind any bravado. He's not overplaying that I'm a psycho card. He's just, he's just being, it's brilliant, brilliant. Just before we open the trunk, actually, let me rewind it a fraction. This might either be brilliant attention to detail for Tarantino or Harvey Keitel or maybe the costume department or the makeup department or a continuity. Someone, someone has said very astutely that he's got blood on his white shirt from looking after Mr. Orange. They've just walked out into the public. So what has he very cleverly done? buttoned up his fucking blazer mate clever good attention to detail because i guarantee you if he hadn't done that there'd be people going um here's in public with blood everywhere and i and it would just be, yeah it's just oh the attention to detail in the filmmaking so good so good and another tarantino staple the as he, well he would call it a trunk shot but I'm not American, so I'm going to call it a boot shot. The shot from the boot. Looking up at people or a lamppost or whatever. But it's in every Tarantino film, I think. It happens in Kill Bill when she's got Sophie, which is um, uh, the Crazy 88. One of them, she's involved with the Crazy 88. And um, Lucy Lou, she's Lucy Lou's right-hand woman. When she's got her in the truck, there's a boot shot there. There's a shot in Inglorious Bastards. Oh, fuck it. Oh, there's one in Jackie Brown when Chris Tucker and Samuel Jackson are looking down into it. Uh, I won't name them all because it'll be boring. Love the framing of this shot. They're in the office. They're having their reunion. Vic Vega's just come back from uh, prison. Uh... Yeah, we've had a few shots already where we're inside the room there and it's not quite symmetrical, you know. You'd maybe have this 
because there's there's always a lot of symmetry in 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 films and things but i think it's more the layout of that particular room that doesn't quite allow it than tarantino not executing on it but it's it's very nearly symmetrical um which always looks nice on on screen and the fact i don't really know what it would establish but it's just a nicely framed shot and that's what i'm gonna say about it (laughs) pick the great moment to pause there on chris pine uh, the late great Chris Pine, ladies and gentlemen. Um, sorry, Chris Pine. Chris Penn. Good God. Sorry, let me take that again. The late great Chris Penn, brother to Sean Penn. Um, sadly passed a few years back, but wonderful actor. Wonderful actor. Also features in True Romance, the other Tarantino movie I was just talking about. Um, yeah, uh, so in this scene, you know, they're talking a lot about uh, how they're going to help Michael Madsen's character out, Vic Vega slash Mr. Blonde, uh, how they're going to help him out after he's done time for them uh, in prison, taking the rap for one of the other jobs they did. And that come that becomes an important plot, plot point later on. Um, and so while all the niceties and stuff are happening, there's a lot of wides, a lot of mids. And then when Vic Vega asks them something a bit more important, like what can he when can he come back to work for them properly? And when he says properly, he means doing criminal shit, right? That's what he wants to do with them. And then we start getting more close-ups on on Chris, on Joe Cavett, and on uh, Vic Vega. I think Vic Vega has pretty much always had close-ups in this one. But so when the stakes of the conversation increase a bit and the niceties and the sort of casual conversation flow pass and we get to the nitty-gritty, then we go from the close, uh, the wides to the closes. Um, it's just a a way to sort of keep the scene interesting, but also let the audience know the stake changes. I love uh, this scene with the cuts between um, nice guy on the phone, getting sort of more and more irate, trying to resolve the situation, trying to get his dad, Joe Cavett, up to speed on everything. And then the clip just before that, where you've got the three guys white, pink, and blonde, beating up this um, poor police officer, Marvin Nash. Um, <laughs> and all the time you've got that song in the background. Um, I, was, I can't remember what it's called, but it's the one that goes, I gotcha, uh-huh, uh-huh. that one. Yeah, it's just, it's a fun scene, despite the assault on the police officer. Let's just go back to that real quick, right? So we've got, we've got, that nice shot, it's the same shot used where Nice Gaddy walks in. Nice big establishing shot. You've got all the players in there. Mr. Pink was about here earlier. So you've got all the players in the scene. Um, and then we've got a few scenes just, uh, sorry, a few cuts back here. Where they're having it out with each other, sort of tell shots like this. Where these guys are telling Nice Gaddy, we've been set up, blah, blah, blah. And then it's got close-ups on Eddie where he then basically sort of says what no we're not like where's your proof xyz and all these shots aren't quite extreme close-ups or anything like that until Mr. Pink's there that's the first close-up or extreme close-up on anyone other than Nice Gaddy in that situation and that's just again a reflection of the emotional uh, stakes in this particular scene you know, as things get spicier, the camera gets closer. 
What a great shot. So we're back on that sort of establishing shot where everybody was in the room. They've all just filtered out. And then straight away, Blondie's attention turns to Marvin Nash, the poor, unfortunate police officer. And the room is suddenly quiet. There's no people talking. There's not a lot of, you know, uh, atmospheric noise in terms of traffic or dogs barking or whatever it might be. Just a eerie quiet for the foreshadowing what's about to happen so as Vic Vega was walking towards camera then we got a pretty much a close-up on him just camera walking backwards taking it all in and then another shot on Marvin Nash as the camera is moving slowly towards him uh, which is reflecting Vic Vega walking towards him real simple stuff but that movement towards him is kind of builds the sense of impending like uh Oh, what's Vic Vega going to do to him? Because we already know it's been well established in the story that he's crazy. So it's a hilarious bit of characterization. I say hilarious. It's really like sinister to laugh about anything to do with this scene. But Mother Nash says to Mr. Blonde, even your boss said there wasn't a setup. And then Mr. Blonde's like, hey, I don't have a boss. No one tells me what to do. And he slaps him in the face. And then after Nash apologizes, oh, yeah, you don't have a boss. Mr. Blonde then realizes he's got blood on his hand and blames Nash for it. <laughs> he goes, what's this fucking shit? And like wipes it on him like as if it was his fault that he bled on Mr. Blonde. <laughs> Just a really funny bit of like characterization and opinions. When you're an actor, you have to have an opinion. You ha your character, sorry, in a scene has to have an opinion on stuff. Otherwise, they can't respond to things. I can't be bothered to expand on that point if you didn't understand it. Brilliant close-up there as he puts his cowboy boot. Again, a nice bit of characterization. That may have been Tarantino with the costume department or Michael Madsen himself. Michael Madsen himself deciding that his character wears cowboy boots. So he plonks his boot up on... Plonks? Yeah, plonks his boot up on the counter. We'll get a close-up of it. See the, the texture of the leather, leather and everything. Pulls a uh, barber's knife out. And then it just pans up to that. Just nice, cool close-up bits. Could have done that from a wide and it wouldn't have been anywhere near as interesting for the viewer. So now the Steelers wheel stuck in the middle with you has started to play from the Cable East Super Sounds of the 70s weekend radio show. And this is the first proper close-up we've got of Marvin Nash in his predicament and the fear starts to come into his eyes a bit more. But he knows he's fucked at this moment. Um, and then simultaneously, we see a sadistic playfulness come over Mr. Blonde. So massive juxtaposition between the uh, the emotional uh, states of both of these characters. And sorry, again, just quickly, the, the camera, a lot of the time when it's focusing on Mr. Blonde has been in a very similar p position, you know, sort of kind of, just behind Marvin Nash as he sat there. We've seen him, you know, walk up and down from it. It, it pans across when he when he was just over on the right looking at Mr. Blonde. So Mr. Orange even. Mr. Blonde was looking at Mr. Orange. Um, and then when he crouched down, it just tilted down, stands back up, it tilts up. And now it's coming back across following him this way. Real simple uh, camera device for it. Like I say, when they're in this warehouse, there does seem to be a lot of... Um, Either steady cam or camera sort of staying more or less in one space. A few cuts here and there. 
um, but but simple yet still effective and very reminiscent of how I think stuff would be shown on a theater you know they're not ah oh, intense so just there he's leapt onto his lap and angled the uh, razor blade down and then a lot of people will accuse Tarantino okay so back then oh my god so if we're saying around about the time of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, right, a lot of people was were saying, even just with those two films released, that Tarantino is really, really violent, loves his violence. And yeah, you can, you can definitely say that. Now I'm not going to get into the debate about, you know, um, is it acceptable in cinema or whatever? Um, but you could definitely say, you know, after films like uh, Inglorious Bastards or Django Unchained or Kill Bill, where there is like loads of uh, blood gushing out of people when they've been cut by samurai swords or when they've been shot and whatever. And, you know, it's a stylistic choice. I've got no problem with it. I know that it's controversial for some people. But back in... 91 or 2 whenever this came out and 94 when Pulp Fiction came out people were still saying Tarantino's incredibly violent but although this act here that he's doing he's cutting off his ear for those that don't remember or don't know he's cutting off his ear and although that is violent it's incredibly violent and very gory we don't actually see any of it on camera. So we have this here where Michael Madsen's whole body is blocking the chopping off of the ear and the camera is currently panning or tracking to the left, which takes them out of frame as we see now. And we do hear the the moaning and the screaming of uh, Marvin Nash and we can hear some of the noise of like, sounds like flesh being chopped and stuff. But the, the point is, the actual act itself doesn't happen on screen. And then cleverly, what the camera did as well is when it tracks to the left, it then goes up a little bit as well. Because what it's doing is it's allowing Michael Madsen to walk into frame in a minute perfectly framed instead of readjusting once he's already in there. The adjustment's made without him being in there, as we'll see. See? So now we're about to get a really good uh, example of diegetic uh, sound in film so diegetic for those i've definitely spoken about it before but diegetic is when the source of the sound so if in this example the music you know the steelers wheels diegetic is when it's happening in the scene so it's happening through the radio that mr blonde tuned in a minute ago so then when he leaves this warehouse that becomes harder to hear or impossible to hear i can't remember because it we're no longer in the place where it was and instead we hear you know, the sounds of the streets, people talking, cars driving, all that kind of stuff. And then when he comes back in the warehouse, we hear the sound again. So that's diegetic. Sorry, we hear the song again. That's diegetic. When it's non-diegetic, it would mean that the audio or the music or whatever it is, is um, not the source of it isn't in the scene. It could be the soundtrack, you know, like when the Fellowship are walking over the, the mountains and we get da 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 in Lord of the Rings. They can't hear that. Those characters can't hear that. So that's non-diegetic. And I love that it's been a one Like following him out of the warehouse to his car and then back into the warehouse has all been a one There's not been any cuts. It's just been a steady cam following him. It's great. You can cut it up, but the audience, I think, will stay with it a bit more and be a little bit more engaged if we're traveling that 
journey with him, you know? And the positioning as well. We still haven't revealed to the audience what his side of his head looks like after his ear was taken off by Mr. Blonde. You know, look at the positioning. He's always blocking him earlier before Mr. Blonde left frame. Marvin Nash had his head to the side like this. Uh, always blocking it from the audience. It's just a good use of blocking. So then eventually when we do see what the side of his head looks like, it's that much more shocking to the audience. See, then although it's technically in frame, it's not, well, not just then, but in some of the previous shots, it's technically in frame, the side of his head, but it's he's moving too quickly. He's splashing gasoline on him. It's just too hard to see. Until now. Mr. Orange has woken up for the first time in a long time what a surprise how okay so ah oh, so intense that sorry that scene is so intense right so you think he's what's that it's suspended peril right so he's covered him in petrol the music has died down it's it's lost its sense of fun mr blonde has stopped dancing we've seen brutality that he's caused to this man by cutting off his ear suddenly all these things are in play he is he's about to set him on fire it's like oh shit do you know what i mean and then just to save the day out of nowhere bang 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 bang, bang empties the whole clip into mr blonde and you're like and then, but also as well to show the passage of time and how much worse his situation is he's paler he's also a lot more covered in blood now and it's wet blood like he's he's leaking fresh still what a moment and then panning around to see mr blonde essentially take his final breath um real real cool instead of just cutting to him dying we we pan around and then we get that sense that like oh shit he's literally only just fallen down like it's uh i like i like it when directors don't just cut to cut to cut to cut to cut when we get these more sustained shots it's just more interesting we finally get the reveal from tim roth that he is a cop um and i love his energy like he's he's on death's door so gone is that uh that that sort of um erratic uh writhing around on the floor kind of thing he had going on when they first make it into the warehouse and now he's very monotone he's very slow with his movements he's not overly expressive he's a bit mumbly because he's yeah he's uh he's dying man uh but now yeah now finally we get the big reveal who is the rat it's been this guy all along here you see this, uh, you see how we've got Marvin Nash's side of his face is in focus. And at the same time, Freddy's in focus. And then the middle is, is blurred. It's out of focus. So normally what happens when something in the foreground, that, is in focus, everything else behind it, in the background, that, would be out of focus. Um, and Or if that's in focus, this is out of focus. That's normally just how lenses and things work but i believe what they would do in situations like this is there's a small disc that you place over the camera lens that allows two things simultaneously to be in focus i'm not quite sure how it works or why it works but that is a way that you can do it 
but you get that smidge in the middle where where the middle is is out of focus but it's just nice because it allows for a um, a nice shot like this where we've got both people so we're forced to sort of focus on both people because it's normally if if one of them is completely out of focus then your eye just goes to the one that you can see clearly you know just a bit of film school for you don't say i don't do anything for you so i love the framing of this shot uh, sorry this scene a lot of anything on Tim Roth has just been low down here, held steady. Um, I don't know if that's showing that they're, they're on a roof somewhere. So I don't know if it was done with the ideas to sort of show that they are on a roof, but also they're undercover cops. So, oh, sorry, that's a good stretch. So they might be on a roof to um, get a bit of privacy because they wouldn't want one of the criminals to see them talking because then it could blow their cover. Uh... But yes, yeah, something he says when he's basically getting um, this guy, I forget his name, is getting Mr. Orange to learn a funny anecdote for the purposes of, you know, his undercover business. It, it helps for him to have a fleshed out history of being a criminal just so that he's more convincing as a criminal to, you know, Joe and Mr. White and everybody. So, but he says to learn those lines, you just got to keep saying it and saying it and saying it and saying it. And that's exactly how I learn my lines. Whenever I get a script or anything, I have to say all the lines like at least a hundred times, sometimes two hundred times, and then it comes. I think it comes a lot more naturally to you then. So yeah, it's like spot on. You can tell that Tarantino did actor training and stuff. He he actually did. I think he trained to be an actor, and ended up you know becoming a sort of mainly writer director, but also does a bit of acting as well. Obviously, he's in like all of his own films and stuff. But uh, yeah. You can tell because he's got that, he's got that actor's approach to crafting the characters and the story, and yeah, love this bit. So this is during um, Tim Roth telling the anecdote that he's learnt to Mr. White, Joe Cavett, and Nice Guy Eddie in the bar, uh, but then it cuts into the the fictitious story of him walking into the men's room with loads of weed on him and seeing Los Angeles County sheriffs and a German Shepherd and everything. Um, but it's all none of that is none of that is real they just throw it in there because it's visually more pleasing so then we get this cool thing where tim roth is in storytelling mode to the guys in the bar but it's staged under as if he's walked into the bathroom so the sheriffs are still looking at him and he's saying about how he felt at the time you know i want to take a, and then and then while he's doing that the camera is just tracking around him which sort of shows the um if the camera was just on him as he was talking it's sort of like oh, okay yeah but then where where the camera tracks around and like um creates a sort of circle around him it's more like things are spiraling out of control or at least how that's how i interpret it it just ups the the ante and the the tension of the moment more so than if it was just a still shot so this bit is just a real interesting use of sound dude like they punctuate the end of that officer's story with this like jet engine sounding uh, hand dryer in the men's room there um i don't know why they do it but it's sort of like i don't know it punctuates the end of the sheriff's story but then also the the tension in the moment where tim roth's character could get arrested so although the audience know that this story isn't f isn't real the fact that tarantino still 
creating tension and atmosphere within the story the fake story in in the men's room just by helps the audience buy into it a bit more instead of being like oh well this is important because this is a fake story we're still bought into it because it still has all the elements of like legitimate uh storytelling and, and filmmaking if that makes sense a little bit reminiscent here of travis bickle in the taxi driver talking to himself in the mirror except this time mr orange is psyching himself up you know getting his confidence in the right place because he's undercover he's about to go do the job and he's saying you know no one's gonna fucking know anything you're the man you're super cool similar again to true romance um there's a sort of through line in there of you're so cool you're so cool between um clarence and alabama so similar again to that being super fucking cool so just quickly on this one it's like the first time we've got all the crew together since the opening sequence where they sat around having coffee i'm pretty sure chronologically this takes place before they go for breakfast at that coffee place um but the camera's panning amongst the troops similarly to how you'd see it panning across you know like a, a group of soldiers before they go into battle while they're being addressed by their their officers their you know people in command in this case it's joe cavett laying the law down to those guys i just thought it was an interesting sort of display it's like they are you know ready for war holding on that shot there to get tim roth's reaction to just shooting a civilian when he's a uh you know a police officer is they have to they have to hold on that if you if you skip over that as a as a director and don't give that time to resonate then what are you doing you have to and the fact that they do is good and like i was talking about in the opening where the camera was panning between the two of them this time to catch us back up to you know at this point we've seen the whole backstory of mr orange you know being an undercover cop and everything how he got shot so now we're now it's catching us up into the stuff that we have already seen in this film um but instead of because it's just been it's his chapter is the mr orange chapter this shot is just on him instead of the one that it was in the previous at the start of the film sorry where it was uh panning back and forth between both of them in the car so the classic tarantino mexican standoff i say the classic tarantino he didn't invent mexican standoffs but he has them like the trunk slash boot shots in pretty much every single one of his films and here we have it now beautifully staged foreground background midground whatever but just fucking boom great shot to his credit in this mr pink has probably been the only consistent professional he's not gone crazy and killed everybody he's not acted irrationally he's not formed an emotional bond with someone to his detriment like mr white did with mr orange or eddie just did there defending his dad he's just been hey let's not get crazy and try and shoot each other act like fucking professionals and uh i'll talk about it now um but it's ambiguous what happens to him because he just leaves in a minute does he get in the car and drive away before the rest of the police turn up does he get caught by the police outside as he's trying to get in i don't know ah oh, that's a point if anyone ever played the playstation 2 reservoir dogs game it's fantastic because it fills in loads of the blanks that this film doesn't like what happens to him and just as a slight tangent there's a thing throughout it like if you just go around shooting all the police and civilians and stuff you are 
you, your psychopath meter goes up but if you're professional and you you take hostages and you subdue them as opposed to killing them and stuff like that your professional meter goes up and depending on which of those ones you are at the end of the game if you're a psycho mr pink goes down in a blaze of glory against the police and if you're a professional he gets away i think he drops the diamonds on the floor and then gets away or something like that that might be if you're a career criminal actually which is like in between the two psycho and professional and if you're a professional he gets away um something like that i can't remember but it's cool um and there's loads of other loads of other bits in the film that sorry in the game that you don't see in the film it's really really cool so during this bit where tim roth admits to larry that he's a, a cop you can actually hear in the background there's a lot of commotion and stuff which has always led me to believe that Mr. Pink doesn't get away but there's a lot of time between Mr. Pink leaving the building and then the police arriving outside which makes me think he must have got away but I don't know uh, but it's yeah it's very <laughs> moving for sorry I'm yawning I've been at this uh, nearly three hours <laughs> um it's very moving for him to uh, admit it to him, you know, because they have that kind of father-son dynamic throughout this whole film. Um, and he knows all the sort of uh, effort that Larry's gone through to try and um, look after him, try and help him get medical attention or defend his honor from the other guys accusing him of being a rat or something and it was all for now because he was wrong and and mr orange essentially betrayed him so then we got the sound of all the police running into the room and saying drop the gun etc and the cameras panned up to take mr orange out of frame but the last thing we saw of mr orange was that mr white has got his gun like to his head so now it's does he get revenge on him and pull the trigger and then ultimately get himself killed or what? It's just a real nice suspenseful sort of final frame. And bam. Hey, what a film. Ah, can you believe it? What a film. Yeah, uh, let me take these headphones off. Tarantino's the man. I love him. He's the best. Uh, there that's that's it i hope that was informative or entertaining or educational whatever but this has already gone on long enough so i'm just going to call it there uh oh and i hope the new format worked <laughs> uh if you watched it on youtube please subscribe to the youtube channel please uh rate and review anywhere you can if you're listening on any other format spotify apple or I think Amazon's the only thing we're not on, so we're on Google as well. Uh, please rate, review, subscribe. It really helps, and hope you enjoyed. Bye.